Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing. Member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week. We turn our attention to the markets this week. U.S. CPI members reinforcing concerns about inflation. And the financial stories that shape our world. A really different reaction to markets. More indications of just how hot the U.S. economy really is. Through the eyes of the most influential voices. Larry Summers, the former Treasury Secretary. Catherine Keating, CEO of BNY Mellon. Sam Zell, chairman and founder of Equity Group Investment. Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. A whole lot of drama from a former U.S. president indicted to a 166-year-old Swiss bank saying goodbye to professional wrestling officially becoming part of La La Land. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. This week, special contributor Larry Summers on picking up the pieces of banking regulation. Owen Thomas of BXP on whether commercial real estate could be the next shoe to drop. Challenges in real estate are going to be tied to the economy. And Kip DeVere of Aries Management on what all of this means for the credit world. The immediate effect is it's actually taken the banks out of our businesses in a lot of ways. There was a lot for Global Wall Street to watch this week, and not all of it was in the markets. We saw a former president of the United States arraigned on criminal charges for the first time ever. And as usual, the former president, Mr. Trump, did not let it pass without comment. This fake case was brought only to interfere with the upcoming 2024 election. The same day that Mr. Trump was facing the music in court, the leadership of Credit Suisse was facing its own music at what was likely the last shareholders meeting ever for Credit Suisse. It's a bitter reality to see that uh, our strategy didn't have time to bear fruit. And if all that weren't enough drama, Global Wall Street witnessed the combination of Hollywood powerhouse Endeavor with World Wrestling Entertainment. WWE will combine with Endeavor's Ultimate Fighting Championship to form a new company that's going to be listed on the New York Stock Exchange. 
When we weren't distracted by the theater of it all, we had plenty to keep us busy in the real economy and in the markets, as OPEC Plus caught everyone out by cutting oil production by a million barrels a day. It's either going to be seen as a precautionary master stroke, or it's going to be seen as an unintentional over-tightening. J.P. Morgan CEO Jamie Dimon issued his annual letter to shareholders and to the world, warning that the crisis with the banks, quote, is not yet over, and even when it is behind this, there will be repercussions from it for years to come. And then we ended the week with those U.S. jobs numbers, adding another 236,000 in March. That's down from 300,000 plus in February, but still enough to take the unemployment rate down to 3.5 percent. The equity markets didn't get a chance to react given the Good Friday holiday. But before that, we had the S&P 500 down just a tenth of a percent, while the Nasdaq was off just over one percent. The bond market was open half of the day on Friday, and the initial reaction was the anticipation of higher rates, with the yield on both the 10-year and the two-year spiking up. To take us through all of this shortened trading week, we welcome now Chris Aylman, Chief Investment Officer at Calsters, and Julian Tett, Financial Times Chair of the Editorial Board and Editor-at-Large for the U.S. So welcome back to Wall Street to both of you. Thank you for being here. Chris, let me start with you. We had a series of economic data this week that seemed to indicate we're really getting softer, maybe we're winning the war against inflation, and then the jobs numbers came in and said maybe not so fast. What did you make of it? It's a conundrum, you know, uh, David, and it's continued to be a conundrum. The Fed's data-driven, so we know they're going to pay attention to these numbers. They're going to look at CPI next week as a real key indicator. The bond market and stock market have been telling us that the Fed is going to pull off a soft landing. I mean, that's amazing to say. It's hard to believe, though. So uh, we'll see. I think the next week and two weeks are going to be really challenging CPI and then earnings reports. And that really is going to weigh on the market because I'm expecting negative uh, comments from CEOs. So, Julian, as I said, the initial reaction to the bond market was maybe higher rates, somewhat higher rates rather than lower rates. What does this tell the Fed about that May meeting and these jobs numbers? Is this a further indication maybe it's too soon to start pausing? Well, I think one way to summarize what's happened the last 24 hours is that bond markets remembered the message, don't fight the Fed. Because after the March madness of collapsing banks, there was a tremendous amount of wishful thinking amongst investors that the Federal Reserve would then go forward and start cutting rates. The Fed itself, in terms of its official statements, has been really clear over and over again that they are not looking for rate cuts. Um, if anything, they are expecting to continue to hike. And it's worth stepping back for a second and saying that any other situation, if you had a 3.5% unemployment rate and a 4.2% annual wage growth rate, there's no way you'd be talking about cutting rates. Um, so I think what's going on right now is the markets are playing catch-up and actually listening to what the Federal Reserve is saying instead of just hope, hoping or dreaming that it might be something different. Uh, and Chris, I'm, I'm curious. You're a long-term investor, obviously, with CalSTRS. You have to worry about all those pensions you have to pay off on. Uh, from your point of view, are we better off getting this behind us more quickly than we are right now? Because this is a slow process here of getting inflation under control. It has been a very painful process, but that's the nature of inflation. The Fed's only tool is to raise rates, and that's an ineffective tool to, to compete against wage and what was starting uh, commodity inflation. So uh, I would like it to get over fast, but I don't think it will, David, because, uh, as Julian said, the, the markets are expecting a soft landing, uh, but it, it's just really hard to believe that Powell can pull that off. I hope he can, but 
the numbers tell us that uh, unemployment should start to increase pretty sizably. And if you talk to CEOs, they're worried about a heavy recession coming up in the future. Well, Chris, what about that? Because the mar uh, we keep anticipating possibly uh, a breakage, if I can put it that way, in the labor market, and yet it doesn't happen. Does Jay Powell need uh, to be a spike up in un un unemployment in order to get where he wants to go? I don't know that he needs it. You know, the, the uh, wages were only up 4%. That's still higher than he wants, but that's not bad. Um, these numbers just are quite a conundrum. Uh, and I think that Powell's only tools to raise rates, he will continue uh, at some point pause. And as Julian pointed out, the markets are expecting a pivot as early as the third quarter. I just don't see that. Uh, and But we're going to find out which is right, the Fed or the markets. Uh, Jillian, does the Fed have a problem right now? They got the inflation issue wrong. I think everyone, including the Fed, even admits that they got it wrong, that so-called transitory inflation. And then we had that banking problem that developed, starting with Silicon Valley Bank. We'll come back and talk about that in more detail. But is the Fed got a problem here of credibility? They've made a couple of big mistakes, have they not, Jillian? Well, I think they certainly have made a couple of big mistakes. I mean, I've been one of those who've been really critical about the super loose monetary policy going on for far too long in the past. You know, what they're trying to do right now, and I think the market has forgotten this, is they are scrambling, they're racing to re-establish their credibility. Because frankly, for a central banker, there's nothing worse than thinking they've lost credibility. So, you know, they have made it really clear that they are not going to be bullied by the markets into cutting prematurely. They're also, though, and this is a really important point, they're trying very hard to signal to the markets that they are separating out monetary policy measures that are helped to the designed to target the economy from financial stability measures. They're trying to deal with a financial stability issue through all kinds of macroprudential tools, and they're trying to indicate that they're not going to loosen policy just for the financial stability reasons. Now, I think in many ways that is the right decision. Um, I think that it's very clear to signal for their credibility that they are committed to trying to tackle inflation. And it's also very, very important for the Fed to signal that they have the credibility, given that we have this little thing called a potential debt ceiling crisis <laughs> coming down the tracks. You know, there's never a good time for the Fed to lose credibility. Right now would be dreadful. Um, so I think there's a lot to play for, as Chris says, in terms of, you know, the market catching up to where the Fed is. Yeah, from your mouth to God's ears, that that's a little problem with the debt ceiling. I hope that that's true. I think all Wall Street hopes that that's true. So Julian Ted and Chris Elman. I think that's a bit of British <laughs> Julian Tett and Chris Elman will be staying with us as we turn from what we saw this week to the aftermath of the banking disruption. That's coming up next on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there.
This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing. Member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Frank Capiello, let's pursue that a little if we, if we can. Does the stock market really have to be affected in the long run by Watergate? Uh, it could be over the next couple of years uh, if you know, all of the energies of the administration uh, are spent uh, in these investigations or warding off investigations, depending on your point of view, and if he loses the confidence of Congress and the confidence of a large part of the electorate. Uh, loss of confidence uh, could freeze the administration from moving forward. And I think what you had this week was, uh, can be summed up in uh, one, well, two words, really, Watergate and uh, oil. That was Louis Ruckheiser back in May of 1973 when another U.S. president was having some difficulties with the law. And as, this, as they did this week, the new oil was very much in the news. The number one movie back then was The Poseidon Adventure. And the number one song was Tie a Yellow Ribbon Around the Old Oak Tree by Tony Orlando and Dawn. Jillian Ted of the Financial Times and Chris Ailman of CalSTRS are still with us. So in the last one, we were talking about the aftermath of what we saw in the banking system, both here in the United States and in Switzerland. Jillian, I want to turn to you because as you wrote in the Financial Times this week, you covered two uh, financial banking crises in the past. How was this different from those? Well, it was very striking, this current crisis, because in some ways it was similar. You know, bank crises are always about a collapse of credit, meaning trust um, in the banking system. Fractional banking doesn't work without trust. Um, and that's what sparks bank runs. And that's true of the South Sea bubble. It's true of today, everything in between. But what was really different this time around was the speed of response and the virality, because so much of it was conducted on social media and through mobile banking channels. And what we discovered is that the Fed system for trying to quell a banking crisis just are not in the 21st century when it comes to trying to contain a panic. We also found out that the contagion risks associated with small to medium-sized banks are significant in a world of social media and mobile banking. Um, you go back to the savings and loans crisis, and no one really cared if small banks collapsed because they didn't really create, create such a chain reaction. In the current hyper-connected world of digital finance and digital social media, it really matters if panic is erupt, if trust is lost. Um, the good news is, of course, that we actually had fairly, fairly small overall losses from this crisis. I mean, 22.5 billion, if you look at what the FDIC says, um, and that's pretty small compared to the history of banking crises. Um, the bad news is, though, that what SVP was was very much a symptom, not a cause. It, symptom, it was a symptom of the fact that the financial system has had way too much, too cheap money for too long. 
Many financial institutions and investors have been taking really dumb bets with that cheap money, um, engaging in a version of a curry trade. And eventually those chickens are going to come home to roost. So I think the best way to see what happened in March is a symptom, not a cause, of a financial system that is seriously dislocated. Chris, we heard from Jamie Dimon, the head of J.P. Morgan, uh, this week, saying he thinks we're past the worst of it. There may be another failure or two along the way, but it's not really fundamentally going to continue to be a banking crisis. From your point of view as an investor, where might the next shoe drop? Because one of the problems here, as I understand it, was unrealized losses on balance sheets. I'm not sure that's only at the banks. No, I agree, David. And I don't know. I, I don't disagree with Jamie Diamond. Uh, we may be uh, over the worst. I don't expect a lot of failures, but there's going to be a lot of pain. Uh, first off, when the Fed raises rates from zero to 500 in nine months, uh, commercial real estate, particularly office real estate, is going to be hurt by that. Cap rates have risen. And while they haven't reappraised, those properties are down probably 20 percent in value. And the people that loan the money on those buildings are usually the regional banks. So we'll probably enter a period again this fall of extend and pretend where building owners have wiped out their equity and they throw the keys back at the bank and the bank doesn't want to pull back that loan. They don't want the commercial real estate. So I think we're going to have a long hangover period of pain just simply because the the Fed raised rates so quickly. Uh, Jillian, I also wonder about another area, and that's private equity, which has just exploded, as you know. I'm not sure how transparent some of the losses might be in private equity. The valuations certainly must have come down on some of those companies. Well, David, that sounds like a masterly British understatement, because the reality is that private equity is private, and we just don't know. And what is really striking about the last few years, um, the gigantic credit bubble, and I do call it a bubble because of the cheap money, um, was that more of it happened through private capital markets than we've ever seen before in history. And the problem with that, and the good news about that is when it starts to implode, it doesn't necessarily immediately hit the regulated banks. And of course, the regulated banks are at the core of credit transmission in the economy. But the bad news is that private equity can't be seen quite so easily what's happening inside. It is private. And the marks tend to take a very long time to come down. So you are going to see more of a hissing sound, if you like, as the bubble deflates, not a dramatic pop. Um, And one of the downsides of that is that there's going to be a lot of quite unpredictable chain reactions because we just don't know the complications um, of where these losses will end up being felt. One area I'm very curious about right now is university endowments, because endowments have to produce a certain amount of income each year to pay the bills, to qualify for charitable status in some um, areas of the world. Um, They're not like sovereign wealth funds that can just swallow losses for a few years. And a lot of university endowments have dashed into the private equity and VC markets in recent years, and they could start to see the outlook looking pretty nasty in the next few years. As I recall, Chris, in the past, you have expressed some skepticism about private equity. I think you pulled back, didn't you, at Calsters? What about pension plans and their investments in private equity? Is there vulnerability there? Well, David, we've actually been a steady state investor. I, I'm skeptical of the valuations, just as Jillian said. But, you know, a lot of private equity, it, you can read it from the employment numbers. They're still kind of steady, so they're not writing it down. But they're also a fundraising, so they're not motivated to write it down. Uh, and I think really that when you look at private equity, particularly, as Jillian said, at the endowment level, uh, there's no distributions. We're not seeing any transactions. Merger Monday has disappeared. So, Uh, It is putting a strain. I think there's a very serious liquidity 
crunch going on around the world, not just in the USA. We can survive it, but it's uh, very tough. People with cash uh, are hoarding it. And, and right now we're not getting any money back from private equity or real estate. Uh, and that's putting a pinch on everybody's balance sheet. So people with negative cash flows are going to find it harder and harder to keep uh, looking at new opportunities. It just is a long, slow grind. I don't think it's going to lead to a, an immediate liquidation where somebody sells a good asset uh, on a fire sale, uh, because there are other people, like she mentioned, the sovereign wealth funds willing to buy that up. So it's a tough, it's a tough period. Many thanks to Chris Aylman of Calsters and Jillian Tett of the Financial Times. Coming up, we're going to turn from credit over the subject of commercial real estate with Owen Thomas of BXP. And this is Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. Looking for cracks. When Silicon Valley Bank went down, it sent tremors through the banking sector. Yeah, it's amazing. I mean, we continue to get new news on banking. Uh, now we've got the SVB takeover. We've also got news that First Republic will continue to be supported by the government. With fear of contagion triggering an immediate and massive government intervention. Treasury worked with the Fed and FDIC to protect depositors in the resolution of SVB. Our intervention was necessary to mitigate systemic risks and protect the broader U.S. banking system. Now that we may be past the worst of the bank failures, investors are looking around for what comes next, with real estate being a prime suspect. Some, like Bruce Flatt of Brookfield, say there's a big difference between top-line properties and the others. There's a real tale of two cities, the best of the best and the worst of the worst. The best of the best today is really, really good. High quality space is very sought after by companies because they want to bring their people back and have new engaging space. While others like Joshua Friedman of Canyon Partners say even the top of the food chain could get hit. In real estate, uh, we don't know what the market clearing price is or cap rate. Leaving people like former FDIC chairman Bill Isaac to think hard about where real estate investments are heading. You always have to fear commercial real estate. It's one of the risky activities in which banks engage. And every now and again, it gets overbuilt and, and out of control and, and people take losses. So that's always an area of, of a bank that you should have uh, under tight control. And to give us his thoughts on where real estate is headed, we welcome now a true expert in the area. He is Owen Thomas, the chairman and CEO of BXP, formerly known as Boston Properties. So welcome, Owen. Great to have you back on Wall Street Week. Great, David. Great to be here. Thank you. So the $24,000, $64,000, 64000000000 billion question, is real estate the next shoe to drop in the aftermath of what we saw with the banks? Uh, the challenges in real estate are going to be tied to the economy. So it all depends on uh, do we have a recession, how deep will the recession be, how long will interest rates be high, um, and the answer to that question will determine you know, the, the challenges that the real estate industry will face in the quarters ahead. We had a Bloomberg report saying that uh, vacancy rates uh, for office properties in Manhattan were at a record high right now, I think something like 15 percent, something like that. Yeah. Uh, how much of that's because of the economic downturn, and how much of it's because people just aren't coming back to the office, they're working from home? Yes, I think that's a big misperception uh, in the market today. 
The office business faces two significant headwinds. One is a slowdown in economic conditions, and the other is work from home. When you have a slowdown in the economy, uh, businesses are uh, more challenged in terms of their P&L, and they do things to cut costs. And you see layoffs going on almost every day uh, right now. And as you have layoffs, companies take less space, uh, or they put sublease space back on the market. Uh, and by the way, this is no different than any other downturn that we've ever experienced. Office and many forms of real estate are economically sensitive. So I think in the premium end of the market, uh, what's impacting uh, our leasing activity today is much more the economic conditions than work from home. And the evidence of that that I would give you is in 2022, last year, our company leased nearly 6 million square feet of space. Uh, which is basically at 95% of our long-term averages. And if you think about it, last year, you know, interest rates um, started to go up, but the economy was much more solid, and there were a lot fewer people in the office. Now you move to 23, office leasing is slowing down, the economy's worse, and there are actually more people working in the office. So what is your experience at BXP, particularly in the tech area? Because we've heard about a lot of layoffs in tech, downsizing in tech. Are you seeing that in your office situation? Yes, well, that has an impact. The technology firms, particularly the larger ones, were important net absorbers of office space since the global financial crisis. And as you know, over the last six months, many of those companies, their uh, pr uh, growth has slowed uh, and they're focused uh, very much on their profitability. And they, many of them have done layoffs uh, and many of them have put sublease space on the market. And by the way, they've all announced some form of return to the office uh, as a result of this as well. How does this affect valuations? Because uh, uh, we have, uh, I guess, NetCrief, it's called, which gives us appraisal yes. uh, valuations. And, one, and same, we got a Bloomberg B-REIT uh, index, a REIT uh, office property index, which, yeah. is not, which is down a lot more than right. the appraisals. So how can you get your arms around exactly what's happening with valuations in real estate? Yeah. So let's divide it between the private market and the public market. On the private market, it's hard to determine value because there are very few transactions going on right now. Uh, interest rates have come up, uh, off, bids are lower, and sellers are so far unprepared to accept those bids. So where is uh, real estate trading? It's trading in the public market, the REITs, as you mentioned. Uh, and if you compare these uh, two areas, you know, office REITs today are off you know, 50 plus or minus percent from peaks in March of last year. But the NACREF index, which is appraisal-based that uh, dictates where private market values are, it's only down about 5 to 6 percent uh, from peak. Higher interest rates obviously affect the economy, slow the economy down, may affect uh, vacancy levels. Uh, it also affects financing uh, for these yeah. properties. How is that playing out right now? For example, if you're putting up a new building, uh, I understand you have construction financing. That's yeah. short term. You've got to turn it into longer term at some time. Are you in the process right now of refinancing, and how does that, how does that work? Yes. Well, financing is harder to get today um, because of concerns about real estate, and also uh, buildings have to have strong cash flows to support the higher interest rates uh, that are associated with financing. From our company's standpoint, most of the financing we do is in the bond market. So we're uh, an investment grade um, uh, issuer of unsecured bonds. And that market is open to us, albeit at higher spreads. Uh, we do have some mortgage financing, and I do think mortgages are available uh, to office real estate. But 
A building has to be well leased, it's got to be of high quality, and it has to be owned by a strong sponsor. What about the high quality you just mentioned? Because yeah. I've heard conflicting things, that there's a huge difference between A buildings and Bs and Cs, or some people say basically it, it applies across the board. Yes, no, this is a very important issue when you think about office real estate. Last year I mentioned all the leasing success that we had, yet we saw all these reports showing many of our cities being 15, 20, 25 percent vacant. And then an important measure in office real estate is net absorption. This is how much um, the occupied space goes up and down in those segments. And if you look at the premier workplaces for the last two years, uh, ended the uh, year end 2022, uh, the premier workplaces had a positive 7 million square feet of net absorption, where everything else was down 25 million square feet. So there's a very, in all the years that I've been doing this, this is one of the strongest moves towards uh, quality office and real estate that I've seen. What about prime cities, if I can put yeah. it that way? Yeah. How, what's the geographic dispersion? We hear reports, of, for example, San Francisco really struggling. New York maybe not doing so well. And then yeah. There's a big move into Austin, into Miami, places yeah. like that. Yeah. Well, there is uh, some migration out of the coastal cities into lower tax states and cities like in Florida and in Texas, but there's also in-migration from employees in uh, New York and San Francisco as well. So um, I do think and believe in the long-term vibrancy of uh, cities like New York and Boston and San Francisco. What about the ecosystem more broadly? At this point, are places like BXP and others mm -hmm. pulling back on future development of properties, which can affect things like construction, construction yeah. workers, employment? Yeah. Well, with the slowdown in demand, clearly there's going to be a slowdown in development. And that's one thing that'll help uh, owners like ourselves because there's going to be less supply in the future because construction's being pulled back. We do have sites and we would consider uh, future development, but it has to be de-risked. And for us, that means uh, pre-leased. What's the biggest opportunity for BXP right now? Yeah. And is it, in fact, part because of the valuation question, there may be some bargains out there at yeah. the moment? No, I think that will come. I mean, a couple of things I would mention. We have also been, in addition to our premier workplace business, we've also been developing life science assets. We're building a large lab building for AstraZeneca in Cambridge. We're converting um, a large building in Cambridge for the Broad Institute. So that's an area of growth for us. Another area of growth for us is simply leasing our portfolio, increasing the occupancy, because we're at about 88 or 89 percent occupied today, and that will uh, grow our income stream. And then I agree with you. I think as this uh, downturn unfolds, I think additional investment opportunities will present themselves to strong players like ourselves. Owen, thank you so much for being here. Okay. Owen Thomas, he is the chairman and CEO of BXP. Coming up, we wrap up the week with our special contributor, Larry Summers of Harvard. That's next on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. 
This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing. Member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. This is Wall Street Week. I'm David West, and we are joined once again by our very special contributor, Larry Summers of Harvard. So, Larry, at the very end of the week, on Good Friday, we would say, those of us of that persuasion, we got the jobs numbers, 236,000, pretty much right on expectations, although the bond market was a little disappointing. They were hoping something softer. What do you make of them? I think this was not a very newsworthy bit of news. Uh, things came in pretty much as people uh, expected. The numbers reflected the strength that we certainly saw in the early part of the first quarter. I don't think this bears on very much on interpreting the economy because the numbers are a few weeks old when we get them. And more importantly, because those numbers, employment and unemployment are lagging indicators of what's happening in uh, the real economy. So the real question is still how much of a credit crunch is uh, coming in the wake of all the banking problems, in the wake of all the disturbances in uh, the banking sector. And that's a very hard thing to know. Well, that's interesting. Credit crunch. I mean, some people refer to that as saying the credit's just not available as opposed to that it's more expensive. Is that what you mean by it? And, And again, when do you think we might have a sense of whether that comes to pass? I think it's a combination of, you know, something's available at any price, but if the price is too high, it doesn't really matter uh, that it is uh, available. I think we're getting a sense that there is some substantial amount of constriction uh, in credit. If you looked at the forward-looking numbers uh, this week from the PMI surveys, Uh, Those numbers were really quite weak. Uh, If you look at the UI claims with the new seasonal adjustment, they're suggesting much less uh, strength than they had been earlier. When you looked at uh, vacancies, they seem to be uh, coming, uh, coming down. So I think you have to say that recession probabilities are going up at this point. And I I think the Fed's got very, very difficult uh, decisions ahead of it with very much uh, two-sided risk. That's a consequence of where we sort of found ourselves uh, with an overheated uh, economy. 
And finally, Larry, you said the magic words to borrow from Groucho Marx there, if I may. Chat GPT, you brought those words originally to Wall Street Week. I know you've been following it closely now. As you talk to people about Chat GPT and its potential, where do you think we are headed? Here's the thing I'm seeing more and more. I think it's coming for uh, the cognitive class. ChatGPT is going to replace what doctors do, hearing symptoms and making diagnoses, before it changes what nurses uh, do, helping patients get up and handle themselves in the hospital. It's going to change what traders uh, do going in and out of financial uh, markets before it changes what salespeople do, making uh, relation, making relationships uh, with uh, potential uh, clients. It's going to change what uh, authors and editors uh, do before it changes what people in bookstores um, do. And so I think this is going to be an enormous uh, change over time in our society. It's fascinating coming through the cognitive class. Thank you so much, Larry. Really appreciate it. Once again, that's a special contributor on Wall Street Week. He's Larry Summers of Harvard. That does it for this episode of Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. This is Bloomberg. See you next week. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.